Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 408, Kerosene. This show is ad-free due to member support. And as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. And you can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Jill, Ray, and Jane for signing up already. Happy New Year! It was 1069. Nice. And as the New Year dawned, things in England were getting a bit weird. To start, England was without its monarch. And that might surprise you. After all, the Normans had spent the last couple years fighting to put down rebellions in Exeter, in the Midlands, up in the north, out to the west, and all the way over to the east. Actually, let me rephrase that. The Normans had spent the last couple years fighting to put down rebellions in every nook, cranny, and bog of England, all while also trying to fend off waves of woodsmen and bandits laying ambushes and planning assassinations. So things in England weren't exactly stable. And yet, William and Matilda were returning to Normandy, likely in autumn of 1068. And interestingly, while we do tend to know where William was and where he was headed to, thanks to a whole army of nerds recording William's movements, and seriously, we have rough itineraries written down by various monks. Well, in late 1068 and early 1069, the record gets murky for some reason. But thankfully, we have charters and other documents that tell us that William and Matilda must have been in Normandy in late 1068 and early 1069. And actually, William and Matilda returning to Normandy after the campaign into York makes quite a bit of sense. First of all, Matilda had just given birth to their son, Henry. And England wasn't particularly safe at the moment. And regardless of whose fault that chaos was, the whole mess wasn't the best place to recover from labor, nor to tend to a newborn. So I'm guessing that much like many of the English aristocrats, the new Norman royalty were eager to get out of this mess as soon as possible. So, as soon as Matilda had recovered enough to handle a cross-channel voyage, they were packing their bags. And on top of the safety issue, William also had a good reason to want to be back in Normandy as well. After all, he was, well, William. And he had enemies. And a lot of them were back in France. So I'm guessing he wanted to show his face in Normandy, you know, just in case people were starting to get ideas while he was out of the duchy. Now granted, William's eldest son, Robert, was in the duchy, and he was ruling in his stead. And actually, in his father's absence, he's been taking on more of a commanding role in Normandy, and it's a trend that will only increase as William becomes distracted by the utter shit show that he created across the channel. But... Robert was still young, probably only about 17 years old. And his nickname, Robert Curthose, translates pretty much directly to Robert Shortstockings. Other chroniclers claim the nickname was actually Brevis Acrea, which Google Translate assures me means short legs. But regardless of what the nickname actually was, everyone agrees that it wasn't said kindly. And the thing about this nickname 
was that it was actually given to Robert by William himself, the boy's own father. Which meant that even the Duke was publicly belittling Robert. Which honestly, isn't that surprising. Nothing about William suggests that he would have been a good father, or that he even would have known how to be a good father. The House of Normandy, and honestly, probably all of Normandy in general, was just a cascade of generational trauma. So William belittling his son and being a terrible father was probably par for the course. But the thing about Normans is that they played for keeps, and Robert's equally traumatized peers were likely to use any excuse to gain an advantage over him. And exploiting a mean nickname would have been an acceptable foothold for climbing the ladder of French nobility. And that's a fact that William the Bastard knew all too well. But, in classic bad dad fashion, William appears to have taken the approach of, well, I had a mean nickname, and look how I turned out. And yeah, Bill, look how you turned out. And now his duchy's future was in the hands of little Robbie Tiny Knickers. And I wonder if William was beginning to regret undercutting him like that. So yeah, better get home sharpish and make sure that everyone remembered that Normandy was actually ruled by Stumpy's remarkably bloodthirsty father. And as the royal couple were preparing for their journey back to Normandy, Orderic tells us that a bunch of knights made it known that they wanted to hitch a ride. Which actually seems kind of weird, right? I mean, William was solidifying his hold on the kingdom through the power of his Mott and Bailey castles. But things were still really shaky, and they looked like they could collapse at any moment. So why weren't the knights staying behind in England to hold things down? I mean, some were, but a lot seemed to want to go home. So why, with the occupation entering its third year, were so many knights itching to get home to Normandy. Well, according to Orderic, the thing that was motivating this rapid return to Normandy was that the knights were getting messages. A lot of messages. See, apparently, many of these knights had wives back in Normandy. Wives who, according to Orderic, were inflamed by their passions and were making it quite clear that it was time for the knights to pack it in and come home. And if they didn't come home, well, then the wives were going to find some other men to satisfy those passions. Yeah, I'm not kidding here. Orderic said that the wives were threatening to find other men if the knights didn't come home. Right now. Adding that there was no way that they would cross the channel and go to England because they'd heard about how things were going over there and constant warfare and rebellions didn't exactly sound sexy. Now, personally, if I was a Norman woman and my husband was across the channel raping and murdering his way through the countryside, I'd probably count my lucky stars that he wasn't at home. I mean, these guys make Billy Zane and Titanic look like a fluffy teddy bear. Just an absolutely nightmarish group of dudes. But apparently, these women wanted their husbands back. And William was aware of it. And he wasn't stupid. He realized that his grip on the kingdom could come loose if he made a major mistake. A major mistake like, for example, deciding to remove the brutal military force that was currently making his occupation possible. And so to head off this threat, he offered the knights lands and titles. 
He promised them great riches in the short term and even more riches once the kingdom was finally pacified. So that's the carrot. The stick was, if they insisted on returning to Normandy anyways, they'd have to abandon those lands and titles. And they would also be branded as cowards and traitors. And in an honor-based culture, that's not a good look. But if what Orderic is telling us is true, the wives weren't mincing words about what would happen if they didn't listen and get on that boat right the f*** now. Quote, Their licentious wives threatened to stain the marriage bed with adultery and stamp the mark of infamy on their offspring. End quote. Yeah. Apparently, the Norman ladies were making it quite clear that they wouldn't even insist on a courtesy pullout. Oh no, Lady Juliet was being very clear here. She was going to have a few kids with Steve if Sir Ralph didn't hurry up and get his butt on a ship. Just a wonderfully healthy culture they've got over there. I can see why the Pope liked these guys so much. But Judy and her girls got the job done because those knights were freaking out. I mean, what good is it to have a bunch of land in England if, at the end of the day, it's Steve's kids who end up inheriting it? And so, faced with the prospect of an entire generation of fit Steves, knights were boarding the ships bound for Normandy in huge numbers. And they weren't the only ones. Don't forget that William had come across the channel with a ridiculous number of mercs. And then, as the occupation dragged on, even more mercs were being hired. And mercs expect to be paid, and paid well. Which means, they're expensive. And it's hard to pay your mercs when your newly acquired kingdom is in a state of near-constant revolt. I mean, a lot of these areas wouldn't pay their taxes. And William, meanwhile, was dumping all his resources into doing things like building castles all over the place. Here's how bad Orderic describes England under William. Quote, a scene of general desolation and prey to the ravages of both natives and foreigners. Fire, robbery, and daily slaughter did their worst on the wretched people, who were forever attacked, trampled down, and crushed. Calamity involved by the victors and the victims in the same toils, prostrating them alternately by the sword, pestilence, and famine." End quote. William had taken what was a prosperous and influential kingdom, and he broke it. Now granted, he had put down the rebellions, but that's really only one part of being king. Governance and income are the actual point of being a king, and William wasn't doing great on that front. And that might help explain why the offered lands and titles, with promises of more lands and titles, didn't exactly do much to motivate the Norman knights. And the added problem with the poverty that William and his knights had inflicted upon the English was that now, as the king of the English, William needed those resources to keep things running. And he dragged a lot of mercs into this boondoggle. And those mercs were now starting to wonder where their paychecks were. So William, quote, taking into consideration the impoverished state of the country, assembled the stipendary soldiers he had in his pay and, rewarding their services with royal munificence, kindly permitted them to return to their homes, end quote. Yeah, he wrecked the revenue stream of England, 
gave a bunch of shady figures the medieval equivalent of Twitter blue checks, and then he announced layoffs. Cool. So that's why, by the end of 1068, there were a lot of knights who were heading home. Like, so many knights. And a good number of them were in a rush because they wanted to get back home before their wives started ringing Steve's doorbell. But hey, for the English, this probably did make for a pretty happy new year. At last, they got a chance to breathe. And now that the royal couple were back in Normandy, William, Matilda, and their court were trying to handle administrative business. Charters were witnessed, agreements were recorded, and cases were heard. And because this was a medieval Norman court, the way those cases were adjudicated got pretty dicey. For example... Historian Bates relates a child custody case that was brought before William. We're told that a certain Stephen and his wife had lost their child. They then bought the child of a local woman. Now, the record makes it quite clear that this happened without Stephen's knowledge. So presumably, this loss, as well as the sale, had occurred while Stephen was overseas with William. And then, at some point, Stephen had died. But the part that I want to know that the record doesn't tell us is how the sale actually took place and who this woman was. Because even in the best possible light, we're looking at the exploitation of the poor and the passing on of trauma from one mother to another, which is yikes. And that trauma hadn't abated. The mother wanted her son back, like a lot. So the case was brought before William and Matilda. And they decided that the mother could have her child back so long as she passed the ordeal of iron. Meaning that she'd have to carry a hot iron bar and pass through unscathed. And some crazy how, the mother did it. Like I said, she really wanted her kiddo back. And the court stayed true to their insane word. They declared that the poor mother could have her child back. But... This is where the story gets really shady. The court added that the child was barred from inheriting from Stephen. And to me, that kind of goes without saying. Unless that little boy was also a son of Stephen's. Then all of a sudden, he would be eligible for inheritance. And it also makes this whole situation way worse. Because then it's possible that what was happening here was the wife of Stephen was trying to nab the son of Stephen's mistress, which is just dark. And the ultimate conclusion of the court actually gets even darker. Because William decreed that Stephen's property would instead go to his wife. No, not Stephen's wife. William's wife. Queen Matilda. The whole family apparently was getting disinherited, but you know... Cha-ching. You know, there are flawed people, and then there's whatever these people were. Now, Matilda eventually gave the property that she snagged from this sad little family to a church chaplain named Renald. And honestly, granting the property to the church was probably wise, considering that Matilda just took part in the courtly torture of a mother and the impoverishment of a child. And I can't imagine that Big J would be all that pleased with how it all went down. He's whipped folks for a hell of a lot less. So yeah, that's the kind of stuff they were up to. It's quite a story, right? And when we look at the witness lists from these charters and chronicles of human misery, 
we see something else that's interesting. One regular fixture in these documents is Roger de Beaumont. Apparently, Roger was with William throughout most, if not all, of his affairs of state in Normandy. And if you're not familiar with Roger de Beaumont, I'm not surprised. Roger was with William since the very earliest days of the planning of the conquest, but unlike Roger de Montgomery, Roger de Beaumont wasn't the recipient of huge sums of lands and titles in England. So what we have here is actually a tale of two Rogers. Montgomery was awash in lands and titles. He couldn't swing a dead cat, or more likely a dead Englishman, without hitting a manor that he owned. But Beaumont, on the other hand, had few lands in England. And it would be easy to assume that this was because Beaumont wasn't close with William, or that William disliked the man. However, Beaumont was witness to a huge number of charters, and he served loyally in William's court. Furthermore, Planchet says that Beaumont was, quote, the noblest, the wealthiest, and the most valiant seigneur of Normandy, and the greatest and most trusted of the Norman family, end quote. But Beaumont was even more than that. He was also William's cousin and one of the rare Norman aristocrats who never rebelled against him. Furthermore, Beaumont's sons acquired quite a bit of English land from William. In fact, when William had that castle constructed at Warwick and he gave it to one of his companions, that companion was Henry de Beaumont, the son of Roger de Beaumont. So what gives here? If even his sons were getting properties, why didn't Roger de Beaumont, the loyal, wealthy, powerful cousin of William, get a big payout from this heist? Well, that's where it all gets fun. Wace, writing from the 12th century, says that while Beaumont had been part of the planning stage of the conquest, and he'd been part of the great council at Lillibon, Beaumont was old as hell. And so when William crossed the channel, along with at least one of Beaumont's sons, the elder Beaumont had to stay home because of just how crazy old he was. And that seems unlikely because Beaumont was only about 10 years older than William. So he would have been about 50 to William's 40. Not exactly a spring chicken, but also not too old to cross the channel. And this is where Malmesbury comes into it. And honestly, he's the reason why I'm sharing this whole story with you. See, Malmesbury predates Wace. And he says that Beaumont was, quote, frequently invited by William I to come to England and receive as a recompense whatever possessions he chose. Always declined, saying he wished to cultivate the inheritance of his forefathers rather than covet or invade foreign possessions which did not belong to him, end quote. Yeah, Beaumont straight up told William that his conquest was unjust and he didn't want to take part in the plunder and theft of a kingdom. Now, surprisingly, even after this, William kept him around and continued to rely on Roger de Beaumont's loyalty, even keeping him as a key witness and courtier in his affairs of state. Though he didn't get rich from the conquest, while Montgomery did partially because Montgomery was totally cool with plunder, but also partially because Montgomery knew how to play the game. And so he kept doing things like giving William new and interesting ways to bribe God, including presenting him with entire abbeys, which I assume would help get him out of being whipped bloody by an incredibly angry Jesus. 
And one thing that I absolutely love about this part of the record is that Malmesbury is visibly unimpressed by Beaumont's morals. In fact, it doesn't even appear that Malmesbury saw this as an issue of values or ethics. Instead, Malmesbury chalks up Roger's spark of humanity as the result of his, quote, primitive simplicity, end quote. Poor, simple, childish Beaumont, believing in things like fairness and human dignity. What a clown. Now, obviously, I feel differently from Malmesbury here. But the way this whole thing plays out strikes me as a very William thing. He didn't trust many people. And for good reason. He was surrounded by people who wanted to take him down. And his father's extended family, in particular, were quite fond of rebelling against him. And so William didn't tend to accept dissent or indications of disloyalty from those around him. But if you were of sufficient rank, and if William saw you as one of the good ones, it appears that you could voice your ethical concerns about the things that he was planning on doing. He'd still do those things, of course, and he wouldn't give you any rewards for your honesty. But you might be able to retain your position at court, provided that it served his interests. William the Bastard, everybody. It's one thing to be born with a name. It's quite another thing to earn it. So, Beaumont's value system is likely why he didn't get rich off the conquest. But he still remained in a position of power within the Norman court. And he also found himself taking part in that weird, let's torture a mom who wants her kid back legal case. And I can't help but wonder how simple Roger felt about that one. Meanwhile, back in England, the occupation continued. Just because William, the Mercs, and some of the Knights had left didn't mean that England was suddenly freed. Oh no, there were still plenty of Normans who remained in England. Which meant that when presented with the choice between lands and riches or a happy marriage, these guys opted for the cash. Ain't no sunshine when she's gone. Though not everyone traded love for money. William Mallet, the newly installed sheriff of Yorkshire, found a hack. He brought his wife and kids with him. Though, as Orderick points out, most of the Norman ladies weren't so eager to spend a holiday dodging assassinations of woodland bandits. And so, while Mallet found a way out of this, there must have been a lot of long faces around the Yule Log that winter. And the knights weren't the only ones going stag in York. Robert de Comine, the newly installed Earl of York, had a family, but they weren't with him. Given the choice between being with his family or being an Earl, Robert went right for the fancy title. And as bad as that was, things were about to get impossibly worse thanks to how Earl Robert decided to handle administration and the small issue of morale. You see, Robert de Comine was very much in the model of a conquest-era Norman lord. He was quick to anger, callous in his judgments, and just shockingly violent. Simeon of Durham adds that Robert was, quote, one of those persons who paid the wages of their followers by licensing their ravages and murders, end quote. And now, he was in charge of an entire earldom, and it was manned by a bunch of sullen knights. So, upon taking command, Robert decided to improve morale by unleashing his men upon the local population. 
Simeon says that Robert gave them free reign to do whatever they wanted to the people of Northumbria. And sure enough, they plundered and pillaged without hesitation. And based on what Orderic told us, any Normans who had an ounce of human attachment had probably just left England, which means that those who remained must have been real pieces of work. And while this new policy of taking out your frustrations on the locals might have provided a bit of distraction for the knights, who were probably desperately trying to ignore what was probably going on back home, it was also a policy that all but guaranteed to enrage the local population. And adding to the outrage, even the infrastructure efforts were causing widespread destruction of neighborhoods and communities. For example, to support the new castle, the River Foss had been dammed, and the Coppergate area was flooded in order to create a moat. And so if you lived in Coppergate, well, you better get a snorkel or find somewhere else to live. Northumbria was learning very quickly how these Normans operated, and they didn't like it one bit. And pretty soon, there were whispered rumors of a growing conspiracy against Norman rule. And it centered in the town of Durham. And even if Robert wasn't acting like Tostig on steroids, the fact that Durham was bristling wasn't exactly a surprise. For one, the North was always up for a little rebellion. And for two, the instability created by the Norman conquest along with the impact that King Malcolm of Scotland was having in the north, would have been like catnip for the northerners. Add to this the fact that the exiled nobles, including their former earl, Gospatric, were nearby and were sending messengers into Northumbria and beyond, gathering support for resistance. And well, you've got a bomb, and just about everyone could hear the timer ticking. And yet... Robert de Kamene kept lighting matches. And I'm guessing that he really didn't like it when he heard of the messengers that were being sent to Denmark, requesting the help of King Swain Etzrasen in this struggle. Even though that was a completely predictable response to what was going on. Because while the Silvatici do make for an exciting story, attacks from the woods aren't a long-term strategy. Sapping your enemy's strength and wearing them down typically only works if you have a plan for something that will then take advantage of that situation and ultimately crush the enemy. We saw this with Alfred, where he relentlessly attacked Guthrum's forces, but that was only a prelude to the ultimate confrontation at the Battle of Eddington. And I suspect that, at least in the north, the hope was that the woodland strikes by the Silvatici would clear the way for a future relief force probably coming from Scotland or Denmark, or maybe both. After all, there were envoys in both kingdoms now seeking support from their kings. I mean, the North was always its own thing, and it had strong ties with both Scotland and Scandinavia. So honestly, it would have been weird if they didn't reach out to those kingdoms when they were under threat from a plundering army. Furthermore, the location makes a lot of sense. For the Northumbrians, Durham was a culturally and religiously significant location. It was deep Bernician territory, St. Cuthbert territory, King Ida territory. The fact that Durham was growing discontent was absolutely predictable, provided you knew the context of the region. But for the Normans, Durham was just 
Well, really far north. That was pretty much it. In fact, none of William's men had even traveled that far. And while you and I know the history that land carries, Earl Robert didn't even bother to listen to this podcast. Instead, Robert was a dyed-in-the-wool Norman lord. And when he heard about all this, he reacted how you would expect him to. He wasn't going to run scared from a bunch of worthless Englishmen. So, knowing that the locals were starting to feel too confident, Robert gathered 700 knights and he headed north into St. Cuthbert's land to Durham. Behind him, he left Sheriff William Mallet, Robert Fitzrichard, and their garrison to guard the castle of York and hold things down. And with that, the Earl set off. And in late January of 1069, Earl Robert and his men were getting close to Durham. And word had spread of their approach. So Bishop Athelwina of Durham, who had aligned himself with the Normans, rushed out to meet them. Because while Robert didn't know the culture of the North, Athelwina did. And so he tried to convince Earl Robert to turn around and head back to York, telling him openly that the locals were planning on murdering him and that they had gathered a large enough force to get the job done. But Earl Robert wasn't impressed. Ooh, a bunch of rye farmers were threatening him? What were they going to do? Throw rocks from their tree houses? Please. The North was his. Durham was his. He could go where he liked. He could plunder where he liked. They weren't the Earl. He was. And so, shortly thereafter, he took possession of the town of Durham. And then he allowed his men to continue their campaign of theft and terror. Simeon adds that the Earl was so bloodthirsty in his occupation of Durham that he even allowed his men to slay men of the church. Meanwhile, we're told that Bishop Athelwina had welcomed the Earl into his home, quote, with all courtesy and honor, end quote. And I'm not sure if they're saying that he truly welcomed them or if he just allowed Robert to stay in his home and was polite about it because he knew that this psychopath was looking for any reason to mete out a little more violence. But either way, Robert settled into the bishop's estate, while his knights were out there roaming the streets looking for victims. But Athelwina wasn't the only person who got an early warning of the Earl's advance. So had the Northumbrian force that had been gathering in secret. And once they'd heard of the occupation of Durham, they took off, marching all through the night to get to the town. They reached the city of Durham at dawn, and breached the gates. Simeon tells us that the Normans were taken by surprise, so I assume that either the gates were down or they had someone on the inside who let them in. And given the behavior of Robert and his men, it's not hard to imagine that there would have been more than a few folks willing to let the Northumbrian army in. And once they were inside Durham, they slaughtered any Norman they found. Some were cut down in the streets, Others were slain in the local homes that they'd occupied. Quote, The affair was conducted with great ferocity, the soldiers being killed in the houses and the streets, end quote. But that cursed Earl was still out on the loose. Well, not so much on the loose. He'd taken refuge in the bishop's manor, along with a large company of his knights. The bishop wasn't in there with him, by the way which means that either Robert had evicted him when he took Durham, 
or the bishop caught on to the plot and decided to leg it. But either way, Robert and his men were in the manor alone, which made it fair game. No need to worry about getting ecclesiastical blood on their spears. And so the Northumbrian army rushed to the manor and attempted to make their way inside. However, the defenders were tightly packed, heavily armed, and had effectively fortified their position. So every time the Northumbrians tried to break through the defenses and enter the manor, they got pushed back. And so eventually, the rebels turned to an old solution. A northern solution. One that had been used by Macbeth, and by Earl Oswulf, and by many northern leaders when facing this exact situation. See, the north of Britain is a cold place. And northern hospitality says that even unwanted guests deserve a chance to warm up. If the Normans wouldn't come out, then the northerners would insist they stay. So they shut them inside the bishop's estate and set it ablaze. And then settled in for a cozy evening. It was done. Here's how Simeon describes it. Quote, So great was the multitude of the slain that almost all parts of the city were flowing with blood. For of 700 men, none but one escaped. End quote. Meanwhile, down in York, Sheriff William Mallet, Robert Fitzrichard, and their knights were getting a little anxious. Because those locals were looking pretty angry. And some of them were armed. Oh, hell. A lot of them were armed. Probably shouldn't have brought your wife and kids with you on conquest, Sheriff. And soon thereafter, all across England in their Motton Bailey castles, Norman knights were getting word of what happened in Durham. And in the wake of the disbanding of the Mercs and the mass resignations that followed the Norman policy of get out or get cucked, the remaining knights were probably wondering what ambushes were waiting for them out there in the English countryside. And also what their wives were up to back at home. Probably should have got on that boat, Ralph. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. And if you'd like to join the conversation, come on over to Reddit and join the pleasantry or the lobility, either one. And you can find links to all the communities in the community section of thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>